What's happening, Mercy Church? Yeah, hey, my name's Spence. If you're new around here, I'm one of the pastors. I serve as the lead pastor here at Mercy Church. Uh, this is my first time preaching in about a month. And man, over the past uh, four weeks, we have had some phenomenal sermons that if you were out uh, as well, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to um, pastors Chris Gaynor and Ryan Brooks, who came in, um, who are a part of our network of churches that we're a part of, preached phenomenal messages. I mean, that one from Ryan last week is still stinging me a little bit. Um, but man, I was particularly just encouraged, uh, excited. I was blessed and challenged by um, Pastor Richard and Pastor Scott, who preached in our Ten Commandments series, which I believe both of them preached their best sermons they've ever preached at Mercy Church, uh, did it right there in that series, and y'all just left me one of the great joys and hopes that I have for mercy and the joy of seeing God answer this prayer is that we have an abundance of great Bible teachers that are a part of our church. We have pastors that God has gifted to preach, but we also have men and women in our church who are gifted Bible teachers, and it is a great joy for me to to be a part of that church. In fact, we're trying to find more avenues and venues to unleash those Bible teachers because uh, that's always for the good of the church. But I told those two guys, I said, okay, I want Scott, you preach on number six, commandment number six, and, um, and then Rashard, you're going to preach on commandment number eight because we're walking through the 10 commandments over the course of the summer if you're new with us. I said, but I need to take number seven. So let's, uh, lucky old number seven is going to be reserved for me uh, when I get back. So I'll take care of that one. So if you have your Bible, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, that's where we're going today. I'm going to go ahead and just put it up here and let's just get into what we're getting into today, okay? Here is our whole passage for today, Exodus 20:14. Do not commit adultery. So that's where we're going um, today. So I figure today, this is a great moment for me to tell you about the incredible kids programming that we have here at Mercy Church. Um, and if you happen to have a child in the in the auditorium, um, I'm going to pray for us in just a second because I need the Lord's help. Um, and it will also be an easy time for you to slip out. Listen, um, I'm not going to say anything a middle schooler hasn't already heard, I don't believe. But um, if you haven't had that conversation with your child yet, this might be a good time. This is probably a PG-13 sermon, all right? So let me pray for us. Uh, we're going to dig into this. Lord, give us your grace. God, I pray that your spirit would take down uh, the walls that the enemy wants to put up when it comes to hearing your truth. Thank you that you have spoken to us. Thank you that you have given us your wisdom, your goodness, your kindness, your character, yourself in the revelation through your word. And so now I ask that you would help us through your spirit to receive it. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you that we get to together sit in here and hear from your word this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Now, there's probably, out of our Ten Commands, um, no more relevant a command here in Charlotte in 2019. Charlotte continues to be one of the top cities in the entire country for people in their 20s and 30s to move into. Um, the average age of people getting married has gone up five years since our parents' generation. In the past, just in the past 10 years here, the, um, the percentage of single people in the 25 to 34 age range who are cohabitating, all right, that number has risen by 24%. And that number, it, listen to this, that percentage is even higher over the past 10 years in the 50 plus age range. Why? Well, it's not because people are taking longer to prepare 
for marriage. They're not reading books on marriage and praying more. No, it's because they're getting naked and breaking this commandment, all right? They can have sex without the mess of marriage. Sex has become a very casual thing in our culture. It is a swipe right thing. Yes, that is what we are talking about today, okay? When we talk about adultery, naturally, we are going to be talking about sex. And if you're uncomfortable with your pastor talking about that, too bad. The Bible talks about it, all right? We're not going to stand over here and act like it's too awkward, so we're not going to do that in church, all the while culture talks about it. That's absurd, right? The Bible talks about it. We're going to talk about it. If it is your first time here, it's not like we talk about this all the time, okay? We talk about it when it comes up in Scripture, all right? I feel like I need to say that, and, and God loves you, and it's going to be okay, all right? Um, we're going to answer four questions today around this commandment, all right? First, we're going to go back and look at why God gave these laws. Why did God give the, all the commandments? Why did he give us these laws? We're at commandment, really, it's our eighth sermon in the commandments, even though we're dealing with commandment number seven. And, and we need to just make sure our mind is, is right about why God gave these laws to begin with. Secondly, we're going to make sure we understand what does this command actually forbid. Then we're going to look at why. And this is the big one. Why does it forbid what it forbids? This is the one that trips everybody up, okay? We'll spend some time there. And then lastly, and this is really important, how can we experience the blessing of God in this area? This area that dominates the minds of so many in our day. And I want to go ahead and put out my cards on the table of where this sermon ends, okay? This sermon ends in Romans 8.1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This sermon ends in 2 Corinthians 5. In Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. The old you is gone, the new has come. That's where we are ending with this. The Bible's approach to sex, listen, it combines these tones of the sacred and of celebration when it talks about it. And that's what I want, that's what I'm hoping, what I've been praying for for weeks as I'm coming in here to preach on this topic, that will be the tone of what you hear today, celebration and sacred. I was reading a few um, books, sermons, whatever I could do to prepare for this, and, uh, and one guy said this, I thought really well. He said the commandment is pronounced as a negative. In fact, several of the commandments are, right, as a negative. Do not do something, right? In this case, do not commit adultery. That's because it is protecting something very sacred and positive, right? Does that make sense? So there's a, there's a positive way to express this same commandment. He said, this pastor said, uh, the positive way is to say, thou shalt have great sex. That would be the positive spin on it, which it's not like God needs a PR manager or anything, but I thought it was a good, good spin there because that's what it's doing. It's protecting and guiding us towards something really wonderful. So we're on commandment seven. We need to begin by remembering why did God give us these laws? Let's start with that first question because we believe it's a good thing God gave these commandments. And we believe this command comes um, ultimately, our, our perception of why he gave these come from, what we believe about God. So I'm going to answer this, this question twice. First, why did God give us these laws? Because God designed us. See, the anthem of our culture right now is that you are at your freest. You are most free when you are independent of any outside rules that would constrain you. Does that make sense? Can you say that again? Make sure you, you catch that. What culture says is you are most free when there's no outside rules constraining you from being you, right? The, you have to discover yourself. You have to discover your truth and rules keep you from self-discovery. The problem with that is that it's not logical. 
It just, it's, it's not logical, and ultimately it will fail. I think about this, I got to go fishing on Monday. The other day, it was awesome. Went out on a river and just floated for 12 hours in a canoe. But we had to get out there bright and early. I'm like a fisherman who's not, I don't know if I should call myself a fisherman. I'm a man who will go fishing if you want to go with me and we will have fun. But I don't have all the gear and stuff. I just borrow and go, you know. Um, but anyways, we had to get out there at 5.30 a.m., I found out, because we had to catch the stripers. And the stripers only hit from 5.30 to 6.30 in the morning. And they're just popping up on the top of the water. And they're a really great fight. And you got to use the Spook Jr. and the Whopper Plopper in order to get them and all the stuff that I learned while I was fishing, right? Um, but the, um, we're out there, and it was awesome. These things are, it's like the water's clapping at you when you're, when you're fishing there. But I actually hooked one and caught it. It was crazy. Biggest fish I ever caught reeling this thing in. And I finally get this thing in. I took up the picture, you know, picked it up took the picture, and then I set him free. Now, to set him free, right, to do catch and release, set him back, let him be free, was to put him into the water. If I set him free on land or set him free in our canoe, he would die, right? But what if the fish really wanted to be in our canoe, Right? What if the fish was like, I really want to see the Roanoke River from a different perspective, right? I want to be able to, to look at all the trees and the beautiful sky and have the sun baking down on me, and that's what I want. Following his desire wouldn't make him free, it would make him dead, right? Listen, here's the way I want to say this. Real freedom is found in following our design, not in following our desire. You track with me on that? Real true freedom is found in following our design, not in our desire. And I recognize, y'all, that this flies right in the face of American culture. In fact, this has been the joy of Mercy Church. You have several of you that were um, born in a foreign country and have moved here. And I found this to be one of these things in conversation, this reality that you just shake your head at um, in disbelief when it comes to, to the homegrown Americans like me. Because we've been told since we were born that we are to trust and follow our desires above all else, right? After all, that's what it means to be free. I mean, Nike told me, just do it. Disney has told me to follow my heart. Parks and Rec told me to treat myself, right? Over and over again. But if I follow my desires, I'll die, right? The whole idea of following your heart is garbage. I follow my desires and I'll die. Example, I have a strong desire to eat chocolate, a strong desire to eat chocolate all days at all times, all right, for real, I love it. Ask anybody who knows me. But Lindsay Justice tells me that that's bad for me. And Lindsay's the nutritionist, and I'm the, like, chocolatist. I don't know if that's a job. If it is, I don't need it because, again, I'll die, right? Lindsay will say, hey, you need to eat leafy greens. But I do not desire to eat leafy greens. <laughs> but my body is designed for leafy greens. So which action is going to make me more free? right? Which action is going to allow me to possibly see my children's graduation, right? Following my desires or my design. My desires are harmful for me there. I'll give you another example. A lot of times we're on tax season. I do not desire to sit down and go through the whole process of filing my taxes. I don't desire to pay the government money. I certainly don't desire to take the time to figure out how much money I'm supposed to pay them. Is it best for me to follow my desires? Will that make me freest? No, it'll make me the opposite of free. I will go to jail, right? Following my desires is not what's best for me there. My point is, we all desire all kinds of things that are actually harmful for us. Why would we think that sexual desires could never possibly be harmful for us? You guys know um, 
Do you got any of you know what the CW channel is? Any of y'all know this thing? All right, if you don't, you have been spared and your life has been blessed because you have missed it. Um, but it's this channel um, on television that makes the same TV show over and over. And it's been doing it for a lot of years with just different characters. Dawson's Creek, One Tree Hill, Gilmore Girls, it's all just the same thing. Different characters, all right? Do not at me. Listen, you got other things you got to deal with, all right? But it's true. And there was one way back in the day. I never really watched it that much, but it was called Seventh Heaven, okay? And um, the, there's this one um, episode that happens in Seventh Heaven, like it happens in all of those episodes, okay? And here's what happens. It's the episode where we're going to talk about sex, right? We're going to have some really clear, candid conversation with one another, and we're going to talk about how you're supposed to approach and feel about it. Well, this particular show, the character set up, um, the dad's a pastor, right? And so it's kind of like a, a pastor's family, and the script um, where it talks about sex is just awful, all right? Because um, you have this scene where the mom and dad are sitting down together, and they're talking with their 14 and 17-year-old daughters, and of course, because it's a CW show, the 14 and 17-year-old daughters are really smart. They get really sharp, good wit, lead female actress. That's like the recipe in CW. It's awesome. But then there's the dad. Um, and the guy who's this pastor, supposedly, um, he says, all right, he, he says, okay, 14-year-old, talking to the 14-year-old, he goes, listen, we just want you to, to feel ready, right? We just want you to, to have a plan, and when you're older, you'll, you'll feel ready. Ugh. So the 14-year-old astutely says something back, like, well, what if I feel ready sooner? Like, what if I felt ready even now? And then the pastor dad, I kid you not, the scene ends with him leaning back on the couch going, whew, end of scene. Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? So naturally, because I'm a three on the Enneagram, I feel like I could have written that script better than whoever did write it. So I took a crack at it, and here's how I think that should have went, okay? I think the teenager should have said what she said, right? Um, so I should just, you know, or the dad goes, well, listen, we, we, you're going to follow your feelings, and the teenager should respond like this. So just follow my feelings, no matter how dishonest, exploitive, manipulative, or immoral they are. And the pastor dad goes, well, no, that's not really what I meant. He starts to waffle. And the teenager goes, right, because, I mean, Hitler followed his desires, and that didn't work out too well for everybody, right? Well, yeah, but I'm not really suggesting, and boom, the, the witty teenager cuts him off again and says, so if I can't follow my feelings all the time, are you suggesting there's some higher moral standard that I must submit even my feelings to? And the pastor dad says, yes. And he'd finally be doing his job, right? <laughs> Teaching people that our desires are not the final verdict on what good is. The design of God is the final verdict. I mean, y'all, has that ever been you? You followed your desires and gotten you into a bad place? Most of us can say yes to that. And the point is here, God's laws are good for us. They aren't given to make us captives in some sort of religious prison. They are set out to show us how to experience the true freedom that we're actually designed for. God designed us, but let me tell you the second answer to this question. Why did God give us these laws? He designed us, but he also loves us. He loves us. He didn't set up these commands and say, okay, humans, you keep these, then I will love you. Then you can have eternity with me. Then I'll save you from your sins. No, these commands are set inside of the story of scripture. Think about Exodus 20. We've said this a few times we got to keep going back to it. Exodus 20, which is the list of the Ten Commandments, starts with, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. It starts with salvation. And how you obey, how you walk, how you live is a response to what God has done for you. 
You are free people again, and now here's how to live. Ephesians 2 says, while we were still in slavery to sin, right? Because the Old Testament picture of slavery with Israel being in slavery, the New Testament picks up on and says, that's how we are when it comes to sin. We are enslaved to it. And Ephesians 2 says, while you were still in your sin, still there, Christ died for you. Because it is by grace, not your works. By grace, you have been saved. And then it finishes and says, okay, now that you have been set free from your sin, now Ephesians 2.10, walk in the good works that God has laid out for you. God is our designer. He's also our rescuer. We said all summer, these commandments are not requirements for earning God's saving love. They are a manual for how to walk in the saving love that God has given us in Christ. So week one, we gave you this key. I'll put it back up here to make sure you understand. If you haven't written this thing down yet, if you're not thinking through the Ten Commandments with this lens, here it is again. We do not obey God to earn salvation from God. We're saved by him. And so we obey. The Ten Commandments are not arbitrary dictates of a detached being. They are the design of a good and loving Father who rescued us from our own sin and who offers us blessing through keeping these commands. Y'all, think about the story of the Bible. God designed us. We ran away from him, so God came and ran after us. God put his son up on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. God brought his son out of the grave so that there would be victory over the consequences of sin, which was death. And then God said, okay, you are now forgiven, but not only that, I'm going to dwell with you, right? I'm going to put my spirit inside of you. God designed you. God sacrificed for you. God said he is with you. And God said, one day you will be with me in eternity. That's the God that we're following who loves you that much, a loving, relentless heavenly father. He is a sovereign designer and he is a loving father. That's, that's why he gave us these laws. Now let's move to our second question. So then what does this command forbid? Back to 2014, do not commit adultery. Probably the most common understanding of this commandment is that it's prohibiting having sex with someone who is married to someone else, which it is. Okay, that is what's happening there. So if that's you right now, you need to be able to look at that and see your life and see that if that's what you're doing right now in your life, you are in plain-faced, open rebellion against God. That's where you are right now. And like David with Bathsheba, you need to repent of your sin first to God. Don't think that you can hide from this. Don't think that there's some clever way out of this. God already sees you. You need to repent first to God and then to the others. Listen, the best time to turn away from this was yesterday. The next best time is today. But if that's, if that's not you, then questions start to come up. Is that all there is to it? I mean, since my girlfriend's not married and I'm not married, does this really apply? What if you're engaged? How does this apply to gay marriage? Is that even talked about and included here? There's lots of questions that start to come up, and these are good questions we're getting into today. But first, let's remember what we said at the outset that this is a prohibitive command protecting something very positive. And that very positive thing that it's protecting is the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife in marriage. Going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, uh, there's this understanding that God has designed marriage to be one man and one woman united for life. That's just scriptural teaching, okay? And sex is meant to be practiced inside of that union. 
Again, you could rephrase this command. Do have great sex. God is the one who designed it to be pleasurable. He knows how it works best. You know, I heard one guy say, it's not like he created Adam and Eve, walked away, came back, and like, whoa, what are y'all doing? No, right? God designed this. He meant for them to have this. He meant for it to be enjoyable. So then what's this command say is, is off limits? Thankfully, the New Test, I love when this happens, y'all. I love when the Bible interprets the Bible, and almost all the time it does, all right? And good Bible students, they see a spot in Scripture, and the first place you go to figure out what this thing is saying, you go to other places in Scripture, all right? And so that's what we have in the New Testament. The New Testament speaks to this in several places. There's a word in the, the Greek uh, that is used repeatedly in the New Testament for any kind of sexual act happening outside of marriage. Uh, it's the word porneia, all right? I'm actually going to put it up, I hope, on the screen for you, uh, if not, P-O-R-N-E-A. IA, okay? Um, it's a, a Greek word, and Jesus uses it in Mark 7. He says, listen, from within, out of people, people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, theft, murders. He keeps going on the list in 22 and 23. He finishes and says, all these evil things come from within and defile a person. And that word sexual immorality, that's the translation of the word porneia. Porneia was used by New Testament authors as kind of like a, I don't know the best way to say it, it's almost like a junk drawer kind of word all right, um, for, to refer to any sexual act happening outside of uh, the marriage relationship of a man and a woman. That includes sex with someone else's spouse, but it is by no means limited to that. And I've had several, several scholars I'm reading say that Jesus, just like all other first century Jews, would look back on the seventh commandment and understand that it covered a multitude, all sexual sins, which means there's pretty much one answer to the litany of questions that we often get asked. Questions like, well, listen, I know, I know about that, but what if we love each other? Well, are you one man and one woman and you are married? If the answer is no, then that's porneia. Well, what if we're engaged? Well, is engaged the same as married? No, right? You can't move into a house just because you go under contract, right? You got to wait till you sign on the line before you move your stuff in, and same is true with sex. If you aren't married, it's porneia, sexual immorality as the New Testament translates it. Well, what if we don't go all the way, though? You know, we just do other stuff. Well, is it sexual? Then it's porneia. Now, at this point, I'm not going to rule out innocent displays of affection. What I'm saying is there's a definite line you cross from affection to foreplay, and you just know it, all right? You know it when you do. And so there's a, a way we say it down here in the South, you know, it's kind of like this, boy, you best not be lighting the fuse of a rocket you don't intend to launch, all right? That's just a little homegrown way of talking about that line that you're thinking about, all right? Well, the next question, pretty serious one in our, in our moment right now, a cultural moment, is what about gay marriage? Well, the Bible doesn't change here. Sex is reserved for one man and one woman in marriage. Anything else is porneia. And sometimes people tell me Jesus never talked about homosexuality, though. It's a different thing, but y'all, he did. Eleven times in the Gospels, he affirms the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. He affirms that understanding of blessed sex, which is between one man and one woman in marriage, and anything outside of that was porneia. But let me say something else here. The reality that people feel attracted to other people is not what we're talking about today. Either attracted to the opposite sex or to the same sex. The reality we are talking about is submitting our desires, just like everything else, to the lordship of Jesus. And because we have members in our church who are attracted to people of the same sex, I have had, the Lord has given me the, the great um, honor to, to listen and to learn from these brothers and sisters 
And what I've learned about is the incredible difficult position, the incredibly difficult position that you feel like you're in where you're caught between two worlds that are deeply opposed to each other right now, the, the world and, and the church. And I want you to know this is not a church where we want you to feel like you have to hide or live in shame. God does not identify you by your sexual desires, and neither will we. Around this time last year, one of our members, Joseph Rue, he wrote a wonderful article on this uh, that's now on our blog and just how someone who is same-sex attracted and is living as a faithful Christian can walk in this world today and walk faithfully inside of a church. Um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful piece that, um, that I'll just give you one word from, uh, but I would encourage you towards it. And it's still setting up on our, our website today. And in his words, he said, listen, sex was not the point of Jesus's ministry. You were. You were. We want Christ to be the identity we focus on, and we want everything else to come second. And I am happy to meet with you one-on-one to talk more about this. I'm happy to connect you with others who can help you, other pastors and others who can help you talk through this, because it's hard to do something like that that's such a lightning rod in our cultural moment, justice in the short window. Oh, y'all, Jesus even goes beyond the standard, though, of sexual actions. He goes beyond it in Matthew 5. He interprets the seventh commandment for his followers, and he says this, you've heard it said, you've heard it that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So now not only is any sexual act outside of marriage prohibited, any lustful thought, and when I say lustful, let's think lingering desire, okay? Jesus is saying that's now adultery. So all pornography that some of y'all are enslaved to right now, and some of y'all are very casually engaging with, it's all incorporated under the seventh commandment. Beyond that, all fantasizing, all lingering looks, if it is sexual in any way, and it is not, for, and it is not a man and a woman in marriage, Jesus says it's adultery, which leads us right to the deeper question that I, I think it's time for us to hit. That's question number three, why? Why does God forbid sex outside of marriage? Why is this such a big deal? Because this is where people struggle with the Bible, right? Like in our day, in our culture, this is where they struggle. They say, I get it when it comes to most of the commandments. Most of the commandments, you're not, when it comes to the one another type stuff, you're not going to have a lot of pushback from our culture, right? It makes sense. Not Murdering others would be bad. I don't want to be murdered. So let, yeah, I'll say that's a good, good commandment. We'll hang out with that. Um, honoring father and mother. Yeah, that makes sense. That, that would promote general good welfare. So let's do that, right? But if two consenting adults want to have sex, why in the world would God forbid that? Who is that hurting? This is the one that makes doubters out of a lot of people in our day. But here's the deal on why God forbids sex outside of marriage. Because we humans are more than biological beings, sex is more than biological for us. When the book of Genesis tells us we're made in the image of God, it means there is something about us. It means we have a soul. We are more than just chemical compounds. We are spiritual beings. We long for something outside of ourselves. And y'all, people that don't believe Christianity, don't ascribe to the Bible, don't believe it's the word of God, even they will, will grant some of this, right? Like we, we are, there's something bigger inside of me that I'm like, man, I long for something more. I feel that sense of the spiritual, and they will even acknowledge there's something happening in sex. Often they'll acknowledge, not always, but something happening in sex that, that is beyond just the physical. The Apostle Paul goes so far to say that the union we experience in marriage, which is 
consummated, gives its ultimate expression in marital sex, is actually supposed to point us to our union with Christ. That's Ephesians 5. Look at this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, right? He's quoting Genesis 2, and the two will become one flesh. He's talking about the sexual union of a man and a woman in marriage. And then he says, this mystery, again, talking about this mystery is profound. The sexual intimacy, that union, the depth of what's happening there is profound. The apostle Paul, who has lots of words, has run out of words. He says, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. This union is profound, but y'all, let me tell you something. It's actually a symbol pointing you to something else. Do you hear that? Because if you hear that, if you grab hold of this, the whole thing I think will make sense. Whether you choose to agree with God or not is entirely up to you, but I think it'll be coherent. Listen to me. Marriage is a complete and total union of two people. Like this, y'all, I love officiating weddings and um, I've gotten to do a lot of that in our church and I love it all the time, right? Because you look at this couple and they're staring into each other's eyes and they are so excited about what's in front of them, their life together. And then right now, the, one of the songs that they all, almost, not always, but a common song to be played in the first dance is John Legend, right? All of me. Can you imagine if Legend wrote it like this? Some of me love some of you. That thing would not be that, like, we're not playing that at the wedding, right? That's not going down. That's not the vows, right? I give you some of my life right now. That's not how that goes, right? He says, all of me loves all of you, all your curves and all your edges, all your perfect imperfections. I give you all, right? But I give you all of me, and you give me all of you. And listen, John Legend's right. He's right. It is total union, and that union is consummated. It's given its fullest expression in sex. Um, Tim Keller, y'all know I love and um, think he's really helpful. He was preaching on Proverbs 5 and said this, and it was like, because the Bible talks about sex in a lot of places, okay? But I thought it was a really helpful um, comment about how it connects to marriage. He says, listen, sex is an analogy. Catch that. Just, just catch it. It's an analogy. Sex is not the ultimate thing. Sex is an analogy of the ultimate uniting act by which the human soul cleaves to God in complete fidelity and faith. And the nature and love of God penetrate us, and into us come his light, his glory, his grace, and his power. And y'all, just like we cannot give only part of ourselves to God, we can't actually only give part of ourselves to another. When giving your sexuality, you must give your emotions, finances, time, everything. We cannot have total intimacy without total commitment. Marriage is a complete union, but marriage is also an exclusive union. And this is major. One of the ways God talks about his relationship with his people all throughout scripture is that they are his bride and he their groom. And the reason he does this is to say they are not to give their worship away to another. And when they do, God refers to them as adulterers. This is the language throughout scripture. And the sexual relationship of marriage is built on that same exclusivity. It's to mirror that. Sex is created by God to be a joy and a delight, a blessing that offers more than just physical pleasure. God designed it to even offer a sense of deep spiritual fulfillment because in marriage, sex rightly echoes the gospel. There in sex where you are naked with one with another, you are seen fully and you are vulnerable. And with Christ, you are seen completely you are completely vulnerable. 
and right there you are accepted. You're accepted. You will be fully known and fully loved in an exclusive love relationship when you are one with Christ. And God created sex to be the echo of that love, an appetizer of the even greater ecstasy that awaits us in our union with Christ in heaven one day. <laughs> you know, you'll have the, the college freshman will always be the one that asks, well, will there be sex in heaven? Stop asking dumb questions. What I do know is it'll be something greater, okay? That's what I know. Whatever's coming is far greater. This is just, just the appetizer. Y'all, the, the Bible often gets hit with the reputation for having a negative view of sex, but it's the exact opposite. I mean, are you hearing this? The Bible's view of sex is the most positive and glorious view of sex possible. Saying, what the Bible says is there's something so profound happening here that it puts you as close to being in touch with God as humanly possible. That's awesome. But that means it's also profoundly damaging when ripped away from its context of marriage. And it's interesting to see people who don't believe, right, who are not Christians, who, who recognize this. There's a book that came out several years ago called The End of Sex. Written by one of the senior editors of Look Magazine, who had been one of the primary spokesmen for the sexual liberation uh, movement back in the 60s. Um, he wrote a book a bunch of years later called The End of Sex. A friend of mine um, turned, turned me to this, and I thought it was so helpful. He said, the author said, I know, I see now that every game has its rules. I was a proponent of sexual liberation, but now I see that even sex has its rules. And unless you play by the rules... Sex can create a depth of loneliness like nothing else can. Y'all, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing that God has given us. And it is a great blessing when we use it as he designed it. Which leads to the last question, how? How can we experience God's blessing in our sex lives? Um, this is the part of the sermon, oh man, I've been praying so much for you guys, for me, um, as we go through this. This is the part of the sermon where I hope you'll hear me really try to lovingly shepherd you towards the grace of Christ from wherever you're starting from. First, I recognize that some of you have never had anyone talk to you about sex from a biblical worldview before. It's never happened. The reason I know that is because there are pastors and staff members here at Mercy Church who growing up never had anybody talk to them about it. I am one of those, okay? Um, the sex talk with my dad was very brief. If you get her pregnant, I got to pay for it. Yes, sir right? That was the end. So there wasn't all this worldview kind of thing that is super important. All right, so I don't want to assume anything on you. So let me talk to you for a second if you've never heard this kind of stuff or heard this teaching from scripture. First, here's what I want you to hear. God loves you and his plans for you are good. You can trust him. God wants you to give your body to your spouse one day as a celebration of your marriage, not to some sex thirsty fool who is consumed by their urges and doesn't actually care about you. Second, listen, a guy or girl does not love you if they're not willing to put your purity above their own desires. If he or she loves you, they'd be willing to wait for marriage. If they aren't willing or are in any way forceful or manipulative about pressuring you into sex, this is real simple. You look at them after church and you say, it's over. Thank you, next. Whatever line you need to use to make that happen, okay? And y'all, if that sounds harsh, I'm sorry, but that's what's, it's because of what's at stake. And if you're the boyfriend or girlfriend who's been the, the problem in the relationship, and you're like, well, yeah, but, but I'm in that same group. I never knew this. I never knew about this stuff. Well, okay, now you know. 
And so you can start today walking in the grace of God, but that relationship still needs to end. Here's my point. You are not missing out by obeying God in this commandment. On the contrary, you would be missing out if you disobeyed him. Trust that he designed you. Trust that he loves you and he has your good in mind. Here's a second group I want to talk to. Some of you are in deep slavery and bondage to sexual sin, and you need freedom. In fact, you are the, the group that I've been thinking about for several weeks in prepping this message. Maybe you're a committed Christian, but when sex calls, you answer. You're in the middle of an immoral relationship. You know you shouldn't be, but the urge is too strong, you say. So when sex calls, you answer. Keep going back. Why? Because right now, sex is your God not the one true God of the Bible. And though you claim Jesus, at the end of the day, sex will win for you. So much so that some of you are thinking about leaving your marriage because the sex in that relationship isn't what you want it to be or what you think you deserve. So you lose yourself in your, your fantasies. You haven't acted on it yet, maybe, but those thoughts are, are stirring and you love giving yourself to those thoughts and those secret moments. Some of you are enslaved to pornography. The urge calls, you answer, because sex is your God right now. And I want you to be free. I want you to be free for a couple of reasons. One is for you personally, you, you need it. God calls you to it. He says, Romans 5, 6, 7, it's this beautiful, just over and over analogies of how you are free in Christ. But he says, in Christ, the chains of sin are broken. They're broken, and you can be free. And I want to call you today to walk in that freedom but the other, listen, I know the Bible is serious about secret sin being the thing that keeps God from moving inside of a group of people. It happened in a battle once. Israel's up against this small army, a sure win, but somebody in Israel's camp had stolen some things they shouldn't have. They had kept it a secret, so God doesn't go up with them in battle, and they get routed. And God doesn't go up in battle again until the hidden sin of one person is confessed and atoned for. And I wonder if hidden sin is keeping God from pouring his blessing onto your life and onto our church. For many of you, today needs to be your day of freedom, which means you need to get serious about two things. First, to be free from sexual sin, you got to get serious about fleeing it. Matthew 5, that passage I read to you where Christ talks about adultery, here's what he says next. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is not being dramatic, okay? He didn't do that. This comes right after the word about adultery. This is about sexual sin, and he's saying get serious. Do whatever it takes to rid yourself of this scourge. You gotta be serious enough to metaphorically cut off your hand which means get the internet out of your home, get rid of cable, do whatever it takes. We got too many two-handed, two-eyed people wandering into hell. We need more spiritual amputees walking towards heaven free from this sin. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying we got men's and women's groups specifically designed and focused on finding victory in this area. You can come talk to one of your pastors about how you can get in touch with those, but... Let us help you find freedom, which leads to the last thing today, because there are plenty of blind, armless people who still fall into lust. So let me say this, to be free from sexual sin, 
you must return to the God of the gospel every single day. The reason you crave sex is because your soul is not right with God. Remember, you're designed by God. He created you to find the deepest level of satisfaction, the highest level of pleasure in him and knowing him. The psalmist says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore with him. And in the absence of knowing him, you will wander to something else. So go to him. Simple, let me just put it real plain and simple. What we crave in sex, we will actually find in God. He is the intimacy our soul needs. And I promise he will more than fill that need. And the more you know him, the more you fill yourself up on him, the more you'll start to see those desires lose their power on you. You can't starve those desires out just through willpower. You have to feed your soul with something better. If I decide I'm going to finally be done with chocolate, I can't just stop eating it. The urges of that sugar in there is going to be too strong. It's going to be, be so difficult. I need to start eating nutrient-dense foods that will fill my body, supply that need, train my body differently. Begin filling your soul with the overwhelming love of God for you. Be captivated by his love, by who he is. That is how you will put your sexual desires in their appropriate place. So you can repent and believe again today. And I'll close with this. To the group of you saying I've messed up. And to the group who's saying I've been harmed by someone else's sin. I feel like I want to say the same thing to to both of you, and it's really hard, and you're going to have to take it, and you have to process it. It's God, God's word from John 11, the woman at the well. Man, she had a messed up sexual history. And Jesus looks at this woman, actually, she, can, she confesses, she talks to him about her messed up sexual history, and he says, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. First, receive the forgiveness Love, receive Romans 8.1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His pardon came first, then the call to action. He cleanses her on the spot. And he says, go and live as a free person, as a new creation, because the old is gone and new has come. Don't leave here beating yourself up. Leave with your eyes and your heart fixed on your Savior. Leave your sin at the foot of the cross. And for those of you that have been hurt, look at the cross. There's more than I can get into, of course, with how you recover from the pain of that, and in no way do I want to slide it, do I want to make light of it, or make recovery simple, all right? But I know it's going to begin with the power of the cross and the forgiveness of the cross and the power of the empty tomb, the resurrection, says he can heal. He can heal and he can make new and he can restore. Go to the God of the gospel every day. Let me, let me pray for you. I want to give you a chance to just respond to God with wherever you are right now. Maybe it's those three groups or maybe you're like, I know someone who I want you to ask God just for, for help from his spirit to believe again the great hope of Christ. 
Maybe you need to say to him, God, I want to be free. So I believe again today. I confess my sin and I believe again today. I believe that I'm free in Christ. In a minute, we're going to take communion, which is the public profession of that. But before we do, just tell him, I believe again. I turn from my sin and I believe again. If you're not a Christian, but you recognize today sex has been your God, and you recognize it's failed you, today you can have the true God that sex was always meant to point you towards. So God, I repent of my sin, where I ran away from your design for me. I ran away from your love. I repent and I receive your forgiveness because I believe Jesus died for me. I believe it and I receive it today. Oh God, thank you for your grace. May we be a people who boldly cling to the confession of our hope, as Hebrews says, without wavering, because he who promised is faithful. May we believe that Christ is better. Help us, I beg you, help us to believe that Christ is better and to live knowing that Christ is better. You continue to pray in a moment. Our team's gonna come up and, and lead us through taking communion, but I want you to continue to pray and talk with God.